Hello, and welcome to this podcast, the second in a series looking into the key findings from our most recent Freshfields whistleblowing survey. Our report, which is the latest instalment in a project that started back in 2014, involved Freshfields gathering the views of over 2,500 respondents across 13 industries in the UK, US, France, Germany and Hong Kong. The aim of the survey was to assess attitudes towards whistleblowing and to examine how they have changed since our last survey, which was conducted in 2017. My name is Nicola Jones, an associate in the Freshfields People and Reward team in London. I'm joined here by Stephanie Chu, who is a senior associate in our Hong Kong office and who heads up our People and Reward team in Asia. We are very pleased to be joined by three esteemed Freshfields colleagues, partner Caroline Stroud and senior associate Holly Inslee both from our London People and Reward team, and partner Boris Feldman, based in our Silicon Valley office, who is the head of US technology dispute, litigation and arbitration. Caroline, Holly, Boris, thank you for joining us today. So in today's podcast, we're going to explore one of the new areas on which respondents were surveyed, which is what they feel has been the impact of the Me Too movement on whistleblowing. I'm sure all of you will know that the Me Too movement is a social movement against sexual abuse and harassment. It actually traces back to as early as 2006, but it was really the Harvey Weinstein scandal in 2017 that propelled the movement onto the global stage. And I think since then, the Me Too movement has played a huge role in exposing systemic issues within the workplace and more generally within society. It's also exposed how widespread sexual harassment really is And that has led to a change in how people think about gender and power. I think that it's also forced companies to re-examine what is and isn't acceptable workplace behavior. So on that note, I'd be really interested in finding out more about what our respondents have said about the Me Too movement's impact on whistleblowing within their organizations. Perhaps, Nicola, you can share those results with us. Sure. So whilst overall positive, It is clear that respondents were divided as to what impact the Me Too movement has had on whistleblowing. Now, 54% of respondents thought that the Me Too movement had increased whistleblowing generally, including on non-Me Too issues. And 40% of respondents said that they credit the Me Too movement with educating them about the legitimate expectations of workplace behaviour. Now, Caroline, from your perspective, Do you think that the Me Too movement has generally increased whistleblowing in the workplace? And were you at all surprised by the findings that uh, came out of our most recent report? Well, I'll address your second question first, Nicola. I was not surprised that there was a significant proportion of people who felt positively that whistleblowing had increased due to the Me Too movement. I think there are probably two reasons. One is... um, that the Me Too movement has made it more acceptable to speak up. So there's been a lot of publicity, there's been famous figures who've been held to account, and there's been much more attention about how important it is to speak out about wrongdoing. And then the second reason is, uh, and I think this is coming out of your um, second statistic, the 40% statistic, where you said that people um, felt that they had been educated about appropriate behaviours, Um, I think since Me Too, the second reason that more people are speaking up is that it's clearer what the standard is that people should be applying in the work 
place and therefore combining an uh, uh, an easier um, environment to speak up with clearer standards has mean that there has been more whistleblowing and I put that um, very much um, at the uh, count of the Me Too movement. Um, I think the other thing that we've seen is that there's been a real increase in attention from regulators and from the media and even from legislators on Me Too and the protection of Me Too um, complainants. So for example, um, I learned just recently that in Denmark, uh, there's a proposal that legislation should be passed which gives Me Too complainants the same protections as whistleblowers. And, that, and that's a completely new uh, law coming into effect. So yes, my, my answer would be absolutely. I think the Me Too movement has uh, supported and increased and fostered whistleblowing. Thanks, Caroline. I have to say that I was actually surprised that the number of respondents who said whistleblowing had increased because of the Me Too movement wasn't even higher than what we'd seen from the survey. And I think the reason I say this is because there has been a real uptick in the number of Me Too related queries from clients in this part of the world. Um, you know, ranging from things like instructions on sexual misconduct type investigations to requests for bespoke training on how to handle Me Too type issues to drafting anti-harassment and workplace relationship policies. And I think to echo what you've said, the, the Me Too movement has really given people the courage to talk about their experiences because they've learned that they're not alone. I think that people who have never had cause to think about sexual harassment previously suddenly saw how much it had affected their colleagues, their friends, and their family. And it certainly made employers more alive to the potential risks in this area. Spinning the globe to come to you, Boris. Now, the, the Me Too movement, of course, began in the US. And it must be right that the Me Too movement has been a, a pivotal moment for whistleblowing in the US, as well as in the wider world. But do you think it has done more to bolster a whistleblowing culture as a whole in the US than perhaps other developments, including the legislative steps that we've seen? So, for example, the Dodd-Frank and Sarbanes-Oxley. Not yet. We're recording this podcast on January 20th, the date of the American inauguration. And when we get together uh three or four years older or wiser, we're going to look back to this date because I think the legal environment in the U.S. is going to change both with respect to harassment and gender issues in the workplace, but also with respect to whistleblower issues. When, when Dodd-Frank was adopted and incorporated federal protection for whistleblowers, it limited it essentially to Securities and Exchange Commission financial integrity issues in companies' SEC filings. Uh, at, at the time, my own view was that was only step one and that rapidly thereafter that would be expanded. For example, if there's federal protection for an employee who calls attention to an improper balance sheet, is it any less worthy of federal protection if they talk about an adulterated drug or a dangerous toy that's being sold. So I thought that the Dodd-Frank whistleblower provision would be expanded to other types of reporting by whistleblowers. It has not, but I think everything's gonna change after today. So whistleblowing in, in Me Too cases 
doesn't have that much protection in the U.S. They're the standard employment law protections, almost entirely state by state, over retaliation. But if you have a close friend who comes to you and says, this person's acted improperly toward me at work, uh, the degree of protection they'll have in reporting that companies have upped their game on their policies to protect people. And some states have been good about it. But, but your friend who asks you that always has to say, well, do I want to get involved in a long drawn out lawsuit? And do I want my resume to be tainted for future employers? And there, I think there has not really been meaningful statutory protection for whistleblowers or potential whistleblowers like that in the U.S. I think that's going to change in the coming years. And you're going to see what have in the U.S. been largely two separate strands, the Me Too movement on workplace harassment and whistleblower protection. I think those two streams are going to converge. Thank you, Boris. Um, a question I have, which I'm sure many of those in our audience may have also had to deal with on a practical level, is how best to handle Me Too-related whistleblowing reports. I think indeed in jurisdictions where there are where there is a statutory definition of what constitutes whistleblowing, whether Me Too type complaints should even be classified as whistleblowing. Holly, do you think that the Me Too issues need to be raised, categorized, escalated, and perhaps investigated by employers in a different way to perhaps other types of complaints? And what about policies? Does the impact of the Me Too movement need to be reflected in the whistleblowing policies? I think an interesting finding from our report was that only 18% of respondents thought that Me Too movement had led to tangible changes to their employers' whistleblowing policies. What are your thoughts on this? So there are a few points there to unpack. So maybe if I start with whether these complaints need to be handled differently, and you mentioned them being raised, but also then categorised and investigated. And I think there are differences there as well. So in terms of whether they need to be raised differently, I'm relatively agnostic. I think what the employer should care about is that it is raised and that there is a route by which it can be raised. And for some companies, the most logical route will be to say, please use our whistleblowing hotline or speak up channels that we already have. Others will feel it's more appropriate to direct it straight into, for example, their HR team. And how it happens, how the information comes in, I don't think is anywhere near as important, assuming it is done internally, because I think that's the company's key priority. We want to know about the issue, not the wider world. It's nowhere near as important as how it's handled once it actually is raised. So I think a huge focus should be on how it's investigated. And that is where I think the categorization can be relevant. So some employers will be thinking about categorization for the reasons that Boris has mentioned, because it impacts the legal protection that somebody may then have as a result of raising their issue. Some will be thinking about it because it goes to perhaps a regulatory obligation. So a UK bank will be thinking, is this whistleblowing? Because they need to have a record of instances of people raising what are called reportable concerns, but we refer to as whistleblowing. And there will be some companies where the categorisation as whistleblowing or not might then impact the investigation funnel that it goes down. And that is really critical because 
I think there are important differences in how you investigate, not necessarily around the principles. You want to get to the facts. You want to speak to the right people, look at the right documents. But perhaps in terms of who is doing the investigation. So, you know, you don't necessarily want um, an expert financial crime investigator um, and and um, somebody who's used to, for example, um, you know, grilling witnesses on, on alleged criminal conduct to come in and speak to a, a vulnerable um, female employee, for example, who's raised a concern with you, you might want to take a completely different approach. And we do sometimes see instances of companies using the same investigatory team for all matters, whether they're Me Too related or something completely different. And I don't think that's always necessarily the way to go because it does require a different skill set. In terms of changes to policies, I think in a way it comes back to the first point, which is you want people to be raising these points in the first place. So you need to make sure that at the very least your policies are absolutely clear that you want people to feel comfortable raising Me Too issues and this is how they should do it. Um, and I would expect most companies to have in place um, a policy that signposts that and does encourage people to raise issues. And to that point and on making people feel comfortable to raise issues, I think one really important thing you can do in your policies is be transparent about the process. Um, there's a lot of discussion around um, the sort of uncertainty um, before somebody raises a concern about what's going to happen. Um, you know, is, is there going to be some huge and detailed investigation? Am I going to have to be interviewed? Will other people be told? How will you go about this? And I think you can allay a lot of fears if you can offer up some information, even at a policy level, saying this is typically how we would then expect the process to unfold. Not huge amounts of detail, but just so that somebody feels they have a, a sense of control over what's about to happen and they know what they're getting into if they raise their issue. Thanks, Holly. That's very interesting. I think what's going to be very um, insightful is how these statistics around the impact of Me Too on whistleblowing may change when we do our next whistleblowing survey, which is hopefully in 2023. Yeah, I completely agree, Steffi. And, and perhaps to come back to Boris to do some more crystal ball gazing like you were at the beginning of our podcast, what do you expect to see? And uh, will you go so far as to make a prediction for us today? And um, so when we reconvene in 2023, we can see whether you were right. So no pressure. So really, instead of a lawyer, you should have had either a cultural anthropologist or a social psychologist. You, you tell me how people are going to behave when they come out of lockdown. Are they going to stop working at home and go back to the office and be contrite that they survived the COVID? Or is this going to be the roaring 20s all over again? Uh, if I had to place my bet on, on, on the spot, I'd say we're in for a wild ride in the workplace after this. The, the change that I would predict, in the U.S. at least, is the federalization of Me Too and Me Too whistleblowing. This has been a state issue a contractual issue, not really a federal issue. I think that's going to change for two reasons. One, if you look at the Biden administration's appointments, there are a very large number of women in key positions who have been in the workplace. And, and as the only guy on this call, I don't, I don't need to say to you, any woman you speak with has had workplace harassment issues. 
pretty much. So you're going to have very powerful women in the administration who want to address this issue. And because they're now in the federal government, the natural move for them will be to address it at the federal level. The second reason, Joe Biden for years was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee in the United States. He always received great support from the, the trial bar, trial lawyers in the United States. And just as many plaintiff's lawyers benefited from the Dodd-Frank whistleblower provisions financially, you can bet that they're going to be very interested to create another business opportunity in this environment. So I, I think there's a chance that three years from now when we get together, we'll say, wow, this has gone from being a California or a New York issue. This is now a federal issue in the United States. And that's changed everything, particularly how companies have to respond. Well, thank you for that, Boris. It's not easy to predict what may come in the future when there are, as you've said, so many uncertainties around the world right now. So Holly and Caroline, keeping in with this theme of looking into the future, what do you think organizations should be doing, or at least consider doing, in order to keep the momentum up and to empower employees to speak up, especially on Me Too type issues? Perhaps coming to you first, Holly, um, what would your key tips be? Well, thinking about our clients, I think there's a lot that they are already doing. There is a huge focus on um, increasing people's willingness to speak up. And a lot of that comes around removing fear of possible retaliation. It's also in making it easy to raise issues and easy to understand, as I touched on previously, what's going to happen if they do. So understanding the consequences and how to navigate their way through the process that's about to unfold. And then there's a huge amount around actually investigating issues well. There's a big part about the employee experience in all of this. And if you think about the ripple effect, somebody who's disgruntled or who thinks the outcome was wrong or who thinks... Um, the matter they raised was handled incorrectly is likely to tell lots of other people that they think that's what happened. And you so you have this very negative ripple effect of people starting to think, oh, I heard that that individual raised an issue and it, and it didn't go well. Equally, you can have a positive ripple effect. If somebody actually raises an issue, it's addressed quickly, they feel they were listened to and they feel that the right outcome was reached, which won't always be the case, but, but it might be. Um, that can have really beneficial effects as well. So so thinking about the knock-on consequences of how well or not to investigate something is important. And there is a huge part for training and education to play. Obviously, important messaging from the top and all of that. And, and thinking about who the top is, it's not always your CEO, for example. For a particular employee, the top might be their direct line manager. It might be a country manager a business unit manager, that messaging has to be flowing right the way through the organisation and coming through at the right levels. And I think it's really important to consider where the training needs a bit of a revamp. Think about the way we're all working at the moment and think about how we might work in the future. I don't think any of us really knows yet how different the working environment might be, how much time we might spend working from home not because we have to, finally, but actually because we choose to. And doesn't that mean that you need to educate people in a different way about the expected 
and acceptable standards of behaviour because you're interacting in a different way. So possibly all your policies and training that you've been faithfully rolling out for the last few years need a bit of a revamp to reflect the fact that we are now working and interacting in a very different way. Thanks very much, Holly. And Caroline, would you add anything to that? Um, I would reiterate what Holly said about making it easy for people to raise complaints. Um, And then the second component, which is absolutely essential, is for people to have trust in what will happen after that. And, And for me, I think there are two things which employers could consider. One is the appointment of an individual who is a champion for Me Too. So in the UK, we have whistleblowing champions in the financial sector who have an obligation to oversee arrangements for whistleblowing within an institution. And I think having an individual, a very senior individual and knowledgeable individual in that champion role would be a good thing to do. And then secondly, I really do support hotlines which are specifically um, publicised for sexual harassment and Me Too issues because I think it's so hard to raise these issues to have someone in the organisation you know is a champion and secondly a specific hotline which comes with the view that you know your your complaint Me Too complaint will be treated in a particular way I think would be very very powerful to making it easy for people to raise complaints and to have trust in the process. Thanks very much, Caroline. I think one thing that is clear is that organizations really just have no room to get this wrong, especially when you consider the headlines that we've seen around the world in the past few years. If I can consolidate what you guys have said, I think it seems like the key to ensuring all of this goes right is that um, we need to make sure the workforce has confidence in the employer to take these types of reports very seriously. And I think that goes to the heart of building a strong and healthy workplace culture, which encourages people to speak up without fear. So perhaps to bring today's conversation to a close, I just wanted to ask each of you for one final takeaway for the listeners today. So if you were to suggest just one action point for employers thinking about how best to handle Me Too issues within their existing whistleblowing infrastructure, what would it be? So perhaps going in order, Holly first, then Caroline, and then coming to you, Boris, to to conclude. Thanks, Nicola. So my point would be, I think, sort of linked to Caroline's um, point about having a specialist voice, a specialist person you can speak to, thinking about your investigations or your investigators pool. Do you have investigators who have specialist knowledge of this or good experience having been involved in this before? Or if you don't, is there some training that you can get for particular identified investigators so that you can skill them up in that area and they can be mindful of some of the extra sensitivities when dealing with these sorts of investigations and can be your go-to people for doing these sorts of investigations so that hopefully they go smoothly and and have the positive outcome that you want them to have. Um, My action point, I think this is a bit repetitive, but I would appoint a, a Me Too champion and I would put in place a dedicated Me Too Um, hotline where people can raise complaints which would then feed directly into these expert investigators that Holly's mentioned because I feel very deeply that Me Too complaints 
are different to the normal whistleblowing complaint on a regulatory or legal issue and that they need to be dealt with with enormous sensitivity by very experienced people. And how about you, Boris? What would be your final takeaway piece of advice for listeners today? Can I negotiate for two? (laughs) First of all, let me say I agree strongly with what Holling Caroline just recommended. I think those should be action items for our clients up front. Uh, I think there are two other things our clients should consider. One is a triage protocol internally. Many of the Me Too complaints that our clients get can be handled internally. Some can't because of the identity of the alleged harasser. And I think in those situations, you should have a protocol in place in advance for going to an advisor. It doesn't have to be your corporate lawyer. You have great latitude in that. But going to an outside advisor to handle it, in part because, for example, if it's an allegation against somebody behind the legal department, employees will be very skeptical about the impartiality of the investigation. So, so number one is a triage plan, depending on the allegation. The second is, it, in my day job, I defend shareholder lawsuits. In, in more and more, good companies are getting sued in shareholder derivative suits over a Me Too culture, not a particular Me Too episode. And, and in defending those, it's very important to show that the board did not turn a blind eye to these issues within an organization. I've grown up in Silicon Valley. There's a caricature of a frat boy culture at a lot of the companies here. And many of the allegations against tech companies in their boards pick up on that. So I think it's very important to have regular reporting in review at the board level the, the person that Caroline and Holly have talked about is sort of a Me Too czar, or you might say a Me Too czarina, a Me Too ombud person, whatever you want to call it. That person needs some face time, at least with a committee of the board, maybe periodically with the entire board to address company-wide culture issues in this regard. Well, thank you. Caroline, Holly, and Boris for joining Nicola and me again today. As always, your insights have been very valuable and incredibly interesting. And thank you everyone for tuning in for this podcast, the second in a series on the latest Freshfields whistleblowing survey.